Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. Today's session is the second in a three-part series focused on U.S. antitrust enforcement under President Biden. The first session focused on merger control, and the third will cover big tech and section two of the Sherman Act. Our topic today is litigation, which as listeners will know, is a core area of practice in the United States. That's not only because in a litigious society, companies can and do seek damages for alleged antitrust violations, and agencies can and do bring cases for cartel conduct and the like, but also because unlike in Europe and many other jurisdictions around the world, the antitrust agencies, the DOJ and the FTC cannot block a merger outright. They need to persuade a judge to do so. Here to discuss the current environment for antitrust litigation in the US are two leading litigators from Cleary Gottlieb's award-winning market-leading antitrust practice. Dave Gelfand, a 40-year veteran of the antitrust world, who joined the US Department of Justice's Antitrust Division as its Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Litigation in 2013, before returning to our firm, is now a senior counsel, and is a teacher, a professor in the DC location of the Arizona of State University. Dave's had considerable experience in litigation, both in the merger control field and other fields. Dave's joined by Heather Neongu, who's based in our Bay Area offices. She also served at the Department of Justice for eight years between 2006 and 2014, and was previously there when she was a very young lawyer working on the Microsoft trial. Her practice focuses on a broad array of litigation matters, including cartel disputes, merger clearance, and other complex uh, criminal and civil litigation matters. She's a highly seasoned litigator. We're delighted to have Heather and Dave with us today. So I'm going to start with some questions for Dave largely on merger enforcement and then switch to Heather. Dave, the Department of Justice Assistant Attorney General Cantor and the FTC Chair Lena Kahn have declared a new era of vigorous and effective enforcement and noted an emphasis on merger control. The courts, though, seem less enthusiastic, and both the DOJ and the FTC have lost in a, a number of high-profile merger trials. So what's gone wrong for the agencies, and do you think this is going to chill their ambition to bring new cases? Well, first of all, Nick, thank you very much for having me on this podcast, and I think it's just terrific that you've put together this series of discussions about antitrust and what's going on. And I'm uh, grateful to be part of it and especially grateful to be sitting with you and and uh, and Heather and uh, talking about the, these important topics. In response to your question, I think the biggest uh, thing that's gone wrong for the agencies is their case selection has been very poor. I know they're ambitious, both uh, the leadership of the DOJ and of the FTC, they want to actually make a difference and change the course of antitrust law and antitrust development. But I think they're learning an important lesson that they don't get to just make up the law. They don't get to declare that things are illegal when the law doesn't support it. And honestly, they're bringing cases that the law does not support 
uh, an allegation that the, the antitrust laws were, were violated. They still have to live by the principles that have been developed over decades of economic development, judicial development, case law development, and you don't change something like this overnight. I, I don't think that it's going to chill their ambitions. I think the ambitions are there. I think maybe uh, the case selection will become a little more uh, thoughtful. Uh, the DOJ has recently won a case uh, involving the publishing industry. There's a merger between two of the leading publishers and the DOJ alleged and proved to a U.S. district court that it would substantially lessen competition in bidding for uh, content from leading authors. It was uh, an interesting case. It seems to have been well tried by the DOJ. I've read the opinion. It uh, looks like they they really put together a, a strong case in that particular instance. But that was a case that was well supported by traditional antitrust principles. You had two competing bidders uh, in a market that was relatively concentrated. They had evidence that that mattered, the, the bid competition between them. They put that in front of a judge and they persuaded the court and, and responded effectively to the various defenses that the parties uh, brought, brought to bear in that case. It's not true in some of their other cases that they've brought. They've, they've tried these more far-fetched ideas and, and theories and the courts are going to put a uh, put a stop to that. They're going to they're not going to just accept that something violates the law because the agencies say it does. So, do you think it's a case of bringing the wrong cases then, or not having sufficient evidence to substantiate the theory of harm that's been brought? I think some cases you, you just can't prove because the transactions are perfectly lawful. Uh, I'm concerned that the, this dialogue has developed, that the government gets to decide anything might be unlawful. They can decide that a merger is potentially unlawful because it involves a private equity firm, or it might have an impact on how many employees are hired by the two companies, or it might impact uh, income inequality. These are all things that have been discussed in uh, antitrust enforcement circles, and that is not the law. Uh, the antitrust laws are there to protect competition, and the principles around how you analyze that are very well developed. They're very advanced, and all the evidence in the world is not going to allow you to prove that a merger is unlawful if all you can say is that it's going to have an impact on income inequality. That's not the law. And the, the political appointees who happen to be in a position at a given moment in time don't get to just declare that that's the law. So there are some cases that simply can't be proven. And I do believe uh, that was the situation with uh, uh, at least two or three of the recent challenges in which the government lost. Now, we can also talk about trial tactics and whether the government agencies brought the right evidence into court, whether their teams were effective. These are good lawyers. They work hard. Uh, they actually are, are pretty relentlessly thorough, probably excessively so in terms of the discovery that they get and the 
enormous amount of time they take to build a file before they bring the case. Uh, but for me, the, the number one issue is they're not bringing cases involving unlawful mergers. And so no, no evidence in the world could possibly prove a violation where none exists. Thankfully, the courts are there to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, clearly, one could change judges over time or one could change the law. In the short term, as you know, the agency heads have talked about changing the guidelines. And in the first of this three-part series, uh, we had a discussion of what the new guidelines could look like. Do you think that's going to make a difference to the ability of the agencies to successfully bring cases on the basis of some of the theories they've been experimenting with? I think it might, but I'm skeptical that you can make a dramatic set of changes to the guidelines overnight and expect the courts to accept them. The guidelines are not part of the substantive law. They are guidelines. They, they guide the agencies in how they make their prosecutorial decisions about which matters to challenge and which ones not to challenge. Our existing horizontal merger guidelines in the United States have been embraced by the courts because over a period of many years, it has become apparent that they are based on sound economic principles. They reflect the development of law over time. Uh, they are not just agency fiat where uh, the, the political appointees in charge say, well, we wish the law said this, therefore we're going to enact new guidelines and hope the courts follow them. If they make dramatic changes to the guidelines, my prediction would be the courts will largely ignore them, see them for what they are, which are just uh, political statements about the kinds of things that the administration wishes violated the law, and, and the courts will continue to decide these cases on, on traditional principles. Thanks, Dave. Uh, just one last question on, uh, on this um, run of defeats, really, that the agencies have had before uh, the courts. You've been at the center of uh, antitrust law enforcement for decades, led the litigation team of the antitrust division of the DOJ for several years. Knowing what you know about these cases and wearing your DOJ hat, I guess, is there anything you would have done differently um, uh, with respect to some of the cases that the agencies have uh, brought, aside perhaps from not bringing them at all? <laughs> well, it's a little hard to answer if, uh, if I wouldn't have brought them at all. I guess one thing uh, I would say, and by the way, I, I really uh, felt very privileged to serve in a, a role at the Justice Department. Heather and I were there at the same time, actually, and uh, we collaborated on a couple of things along the way, and it was absolutely the thrill of my career to have an opportunity to represent the United States and protect the interests of U.S. consumers. Uh, I, I've had no higher calling in my time as a lawyer, so I, I really loved that job. I loved being part of it. Um, and, it and I'm not going to use this occasion to be critical of specific case teams or lawyers or how particular cases were litigated. But I will say this, the agencies have a tendency to overcomplicate uh, antitrust litigation. And I think this is a problem generally with uh, civil litigation uh, more broadly, private cases and government cases. Antitrust is a complicated 
area, but it doesn't mean every case needs to run down every blind alley and every theoretical idea that one might bring to bear. It doesn't mean that every case needs 10 million documents and two years and a thousand trial exhibits. Most cases in my experience boil down to two or three or four fundamental points. And they boil down to uh, maybe a few dozen critical trial exhibits at the most. And I think if, if litigators, and it has to start with the government because the government brings the cases and dictates the issues that will be put in front of the judge and the defendants then have to respond to those. I think the sooner we all as antitrust litigators start simplifying these cases and boiling, boiling them down to their essence for judges and for the public to understand, it will be a good thing. And they'll win cases. They'll, they'll, they'll be thoughtful about whether they really have a fundamental point that they're trying to challenge in the in the particular litigation. And they've either, either got the evidence to support it or they don't. If they find themselves uh, day after day at trial, putting in sound bites from old documents and trying to stitch them together and draw inferences and then have an economist come in and explain some far-fetched theory that pulls it all together in some way that isn't intuitive to the judge, they're going to keep losing these cases, even when they have uh, a well-founded theory of harm. That's a good segue to a specific case that you know well. I generally don't ask people about individual cases, but I can't resist asking you about a case that you litigated this summer. This was a, um, this was a matter where the DOJ uh, brought a case suing to enjoin United Health's acquisition of Change Healthcare. Uh, they argued, as you know, that post-merger, uh, United Health will be able to access data from other healthcare plans through Optum, and that this will be anti-competitive. How did you persuade the court otherwise? Well, first of all, I was part of a great team involving lawyers from Cleary and several other excellent firms. Uh, so I don't want to speak in terms of first-person singular pronouns, but I was very privileged to be part of this team. And I think the way we did it was explain to the court exactly what was going on. The DOJ's case was a classic example of ready, fire, aim. I don't really think they understood how they were going to prove that case when they brought it. And the evidence fell just woefully short of establishing their claim. It sounds simple. We're going to get data. Therefore, something must be wrong with that. But the legal standard under U.S. law is substantial lessening of competition. The government has to prove that. And the markets that they chose to try to demonstrate that in were markets for commercial insurance market for commercial insurance uh, policies sold to the largest customers in the United States. That's the market they chose to argue would be uh, affected by this vertical theory that they had. They put on precious little evidence about those actual uh, markets. They never really explained to the court how competition was going to be substantially lessened. And they had a theory that when United got a hold of this data, United's biggest insurance company uh, competitors would stop innovating or slow down innovating and put in less competitive bids. And this is a classic example of trying to prove a case where you don't have the evidence. Their own witnesses 
showed up at trial and from these other insurance companies and testified that they were not going to slow down innovation. They were not going to compete less uh, aggressively for these big insurance contracts. And you can't expect a judge to embrace your theory of harm when your own witnesses, who are the very companies you're saying are going to change their behavior, when those same companies and their senior executives show up at trial and say, we're not going to do that. You can't have an economist show up and just make that up and say, well, I think they will, even though they don't think they will. So uh, the, ev the evidence wasn't even close. They didn't have the goods. Like I said, they shouldn't have brought the case in the first place. That's a, one of the examples I would give is a case that should have never been brought. But having brought it, they needed to do a whole lot more than just state a theory when the evidence pointed in exactly the opposite direction. So let me talk about the possibility of legislative change. Some have speculated that the agency heads have a reasonable amount of political cover in respect of these actions brought but lost, and that they're part of a longer term strategy to think about changing the law. As you know, despite the political gridlock in the US, uh, there seems to be some measure of bipartisan support in, uh, in favor of uh, some measure of substantive uh, reform. And both parties or politicians from both parties have uh, submitted bills, uh, the Republican Senator Hawley's trust busting in the 21st Century Act and the Democratic uh, Senator Klubacher's Competition and Antitrust Law Enforcement Act. Of course, these are different pieces of legislation. But the question I have is, do you think the litigation losses that are beginning to mount up now uh, are going to catalyze legislative change? What sort of legislation do you think could pass? And what do you think the implications are likely to be? Well, I, I will say that uh, Heather and I and our colleagues, our heads are spinning with all of these pieces of proposed legislation. There is a, an interesting bipartisan consensus that has emerged that we need to do something about antitrust. I, I think the motivations are different depending upon which politicians and which political viewpoints you, you speak to. Some of this is driven by concerns about free speech on uh, tech platforms, et cetera, not really antitrust issues. But I do think there is a lot of interest in it. It hasn't gotten very far so far. I'm skeptical that there's going to be any dramatic change to antitrust law. We'll see. We're going to have a split uh, Congress in all likelihood in the U.S. going forward for the next two years. The Senate will be controlled by the Democrats. The House will almost certainly be controlled by the Republicans. And that will be known by the time this podcast airs. Uh, and it's hard to get legislation passed. I think if uh, anything, there might be some successful efforts to increase filing fees, provide more funding to the agencies. There's a view that the agencies are outgunned by defense firms. I don't subscribe to that view. Every case I've litigated against the government has involved 20 government lawyers and seemingly a bottomless pit of resources on the government side. Uh, I actually think they have more resources than the parties a lot of the time. But nevertheless, uh, the agencies have successfully scapegoated their supposed lack of uh, funding for some of their failures. And um, 
So there does seem to be some interest in that. I just don't think you're going to see any dramatic changes in the law, some of the more extreme things that have been talked about, just coming in and breaking up big companies or outright prohibiting all mergers involving companies of a certain size. That would be taking the law back 50 or 100 years into a dark ages and be horrible for innovation. And I think once people think about uh, some of these ideas more carefully and maybe conduct some hearings, they'll realize uh, a lot of this proposed legislation is uh, ill-advised. Thanks, Dave. Heather, uh, before I turn to you with some questions on non-merger litigation, do you have a different view to Dave on the prospects of this uh, legislation or these legislative uh, proposals that have been advanced, their likelihood of success and the implications they might have for practice? No, I really don't. But I do. I am sort of not sympathetic, it's probably not right, the right word, but I am cognizant of the fact that the DOJ is facing a real dilemma here. They are trying to fit sort of the square peg of of their views and and their and like Dave said, their sort of mission statement about where they think the law should be into the round hole of what is true antitrust law. And the only way they're going to be able to fix it is they're not finding it in the courts. That's not working out for them because the courts are following precedent. So the only way they can do it is to try to jam some legislation that is is just going to fail uh, in any event. So it's a lot of a lot of effort, a lot of resources put on that uh, on the part of the government. And the part of the, you know, the individual sort of, again, actors involved to have some view of the world that is not um, within the four corners of, of the reality. And I think it's, it's unfortunate that that's where we're spending a lot of our time. Thanks, Heather. So let's switch from uh, litigation concerning mergers to uh, the vast area of litigation um, in respect of other areas of antitrust. Uh, the government, as you know, uh, has not only been losing some cases in the merger field, but also uh, in the cartel area. Uh, the DOJ recently dropped uh, the last remaining charges relating to an alleged price-fixing conspiracy among the nation's largest chicken producers. Uh, what began as a newsmaking indictment of 14 individuals ended with two mistrials and acquittal, dropped charges, and only a single guilty plea uh, to show for it. You follow that case closely, I know. What do you think went wrong and what do you think the key takeaways are? It goes back to exactly what Dave said and sort of the theme of, of our talk so far today, which is the DOJ and as we see in the FTC as well, their proclivity to shoot first and aim later. And that's exactly what happened here with the chickens case and frankly with every criminal indictment and prosecution as of late. Uh, the chickens case was basically an information exchange uh, that they were trying to apply criminal intent to. And under the law, that is just not appropriate. Um, there is a jury instruction, which I'm sure they received. I haven't gone through and fly spec the jury instructions in the chickens case, but I'm certain, most certain that it, it is a model instruction. And it just says that information exchange without nothing more is not per se illegal. And in order to have criminal prosecution, you really have to have a per se case. It's essentially strict liability here where the government you know, doesn't have to even prove really anything. So long as there is an agreement uh, to engage in anti-competitive acts, you're done. You don't have to show that there was an effect. The agreement itself is a crime. Here, there was a lot of noise, but there wasn't an actual agreement, or at least there wasn't a witness who really would say there's an agreement. And that's the key takeaway here. All of the successful prosecutions that the government had in the past, and really it has a, it has a tremendous record even at trial 
in the past. Um, recently, they don't have that record anymore. And the reason is because they fundamentally changed the way that they did things. There are certain hallmarks to particularly a criminal and prosecution that you must have. And in the past, they really celebrated the leniency program, which provided them with cooperation that is sort of never ending and extremely helpful. And it provides you with witnesses and individuals who will actually say, I reached an agreement and here is what happened. If you don't have a person who's going to say, I reached an agreement, and instead what you're trying to do is prove through circumstantial evidence cobbled together uh, through documents that you then put forward through an FBI witness who's supposed to sit on the stand and tell you that all of this evidence amounts to an agreement, that's not going to survive in front of a jury. And we saw that in chickens. We saw that in the DeVita no poach case, which is another thing I think we'll get to in a moment about, again, the overreach of the antitrust division these days. Um, all of this you know, really shows you that you need to have the ability to put a live individual on the stand who will say, I violated the law. And they really didn't have that you know, in the chickens case. And in fact, lately, in the most recent iteration of this, so there were three trials uh, that uh, resulted first two in a hung, a hung jury, the third resulted in an acquittal. Uh, the government had dropped uh, five of the defendants from, this, from the second uh, retrial. And then the court, there were two other chickens defendants that were a separate case than the multi-defendant case. And the court ruled that in the sort of what's called a James hearing, it's where you look at the conspiracy, purported conspiracy evidence, and you rule whether on a preponderance of the evidence there's enough to show a conspiracy for the, for you to overcome the hearsay rule. The court ruled on that, that there wasn't, that they couldn't even meet that standard. Uh, the court was kind of fed up at this point uh, with the government. And in fact, in the original trial, the multi-defendant trial, the court actually hailed AAG Cantor into its courtroom in Colorado to justify why there needed to be another retrial. Uh, and so, you know, courts are very skeptical now. And I think what's happening, it's really bad to the program of the antitrust division, is that by bringing these cases, by overreaching in these so-called no-poach cases, and by bringing really not hardcore, clear cartel conduct in these, what, what should be a hardcore cartel is price fixing. But when you bring a very weak case and you're calling it or dressing it up as price fixing, what you're doing is you're eroding the per se standard because now courts aren't looking at these cases and saying, well, it's obvious. There's, you know, there's no reason competitors should be discussing these things. There's no justification for this conduct. When you start bringing in bringing cases where there is just so could be some justification, there could be a pro-competitive element to these discussions. When you start doing that, the courts start to wonder, wait, is it fair to have this per se standard? Is it fair to have strict li liability? Is it fair for us, for the government to not have to actually prove that uh, there was specific intent here because there's no requirement of specific intent in a per se case. And now we're seeing jury instructions, we're seeing um, decisions where it looks like the court is really questioning whether or not the per se standard, which was just a given to the government in the past, is a fair uh, approach from a due process standpoint. So I think what's going to happen, it's something that I was actually on a panel with the government uh, at spring meeting and discussed this. I think what's going to happen is we're going to start seeing these jury instructions that were created in these cases where there's clear government overreach that have kind of eroded what was the model jury instructions always used in these cases. They're going to, going to be applied in what really should be a true, easy to prove cartel case that should never go to trial, but the defendants are going to start rolling the dice because uh, the government keeps losing and they have to can take advantage of potentially these jury instructions that actually put an element of doubt 
into the jury's mind. And so I think it's good for, uh, you know, frankly, us defense counsel that we have now, I think, a, a body of decisions and, you know, they're not binding, but of decisions by other judges that we can point to. Uh, to really make judges at the motion to dismiss phase at the what's called the rule 29, which is like a directed verdict phase, uh, really take into account, has the government really proven their case? Again, just going back to these hallmarks, you always used to have multiple witnesses who would say there's an agreement. You also would have, and you don't have to have this as a matter of law, but you would have evidence of consciousness of guilt in every price fixing case I ever tried in the, in the government always had lots of evidence of destroy after reading, you know, hiding documents, things like that. You don't really see that in these cases of no poach or uh, I'm not sure in the chickens case, but in these weaker cases, you don't really see that. And that's because people actually did what they were doing. They thought they were doing the right thing. And so when you have that kind of evidence and the government knows that before they indict and they still go forward with an indictment and try to go to a jury and say, no, trust us, this is wrong. It's it's going to be a failed a failed effort, and I think we keep seeing that over and over again. Thank you very much, Heather. Dave spoke about a series of cases brought in the merger field on the basis of theories which he didn't think effectively uh, stacked up. Sounds like uh, there's been a similar number of cases of overreach in um, in what I call the cartel area. And my yeah. question for you is: um, Is this overreach a deliberate consequence of a decision made to try to broaden the scope of what is considered per se unlawful? Or has there just been a dearth of traditional cases so the government's decided to use that vacuum, if you like, to bring cases on the basis of new theories of harm or somewhere between the two? I think it's really the former, but the really skeptical and sort of Machiavellian people would say that cartel work was drying up in the core areas, you know, price fixing, bid rigging, I mean, international cartels were sort of a thing of the past. And that could be because people got religion. It could be because people got smarter. Um, who, who really knows? But what people, some people claim is that there was this whole area of, of conduct that civil litigators were actually uh, prosecuting. And also DOJ was prosecuting on a civil basis. And that is in the labor markets. And there is a theory here that back in 2016 or so, when the high tech cases happened, which was, you know, alleged collusion among uh, various high tech firms in terms of non-solicit or no poaching of employees, uh, the civil plaintiffs in that case received hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, in uh, court-approved settlements. In fact, Judge Coe in the in a Northern District of California actually turned the, the groups, the parties away when they came to her with a settlement in that case and said it was too low, go back and give me a, a higher settlement. So I think the DOJ or the view is the DOJ looked at that and said, why are we just getting consent decrees here? Uh, we, we, could, we could also prosecute these criminally. They're no different than agreements not to compete. Uh, so you know, essentially you know, uh, agreements to market allocate, that's, that's what they tried to shoehorn it into because really there's three core conducts, right? There's bid allocate, bid, bid rigging, there's market allocation and there's price fixing. And so the one they thought fit most closely would be market allocation saying, you take, you keep your employees, we'll keep ours. And there's no case that says that's actually market allocation, but that's what they decided the law was going to be. And so they, they kind of proclamated these um, HR guidelines back in 2016 that said, uh, we've always prosecuted these things. We've prosecuted them civilly. 
you're on notice. We could have prosecuted them criminally. And you're on notice that from here on out, we will prosecute them criminally. We're going to give you a little bit of time before we do that. And then they couldn't find a case. And that's because it's very difficult to show in a labor market situation that there isn't some justification. Oftentimes you have vertical arrangements or you even have JVs, or there could be some reason. There could be, for example, in the high tech cases, there were discussions about, you know, people have sort of the intellectual property of their current employer and there needs to be some sort of a gardening leave or some sort of a time period um, in between, uh, you know, moving over to another employer. There's all sorts of different justifications in labor markets. And so they were having a hard time finding a case. And instead of keeping steady and waiting for that case, because I'm certain that case is out there, I'm quite certain of it. Instead of waiting, they forced a case that was not a, a clear, clear uh, agreement not to compete where they have no business talking to each other. And they keep doing that over and over again. And I think that the biggest offender is in the aerospace industry where there are absolutely vertical arrangements. In fact, the indictment actually alleges that the arrangement between the companies uh, is vertical. And yet, and that they're in, you know, in the, in the defense, of course, is that the, these understandings to the extent they existed were ancillary to a legitimate arrangement. And the government is currently prosecuting that case and has indicted the individuals in that case. So it's, it's very concerning to see that the law has been stretched beyond uh, belief at this point. It's truly contorted. And we're going to have to see how the courts really view it. And we are seeing in these non-solicit cases, we have one example so far, and that is uh, U.S. v. DeVita, and again, in Colorado, where the chickens case were, was also taking place, different, different judge, but same courthouse. And there it was a, it was a full acquittal of the corporation and uh, the former CEO in that case. And, so, and also some very bad jury instructions for the government. So let me turn to another topic that's of considerable interest to many of our clients, the issue of interlocking directorates. Assistant Attorney General Cantor recently said that the Antitrust Division is undertaking an extensive review of interlocking directorates across the entire economy and will, and will enforce the law. And just a few weeks ago, the Department of Justice secured the resignations of seven board members across 10 companies that the agency argued had too much competitive overlap to permit mutual leadership. So my question for you, Heather, is what should board directors be doing to ensure that they aren't next? I think this is a really serious concern. I think you're right, Nick, that this is something that should be of interest and is of interest to our clients. I think that here the government's focus on this probably is relates to their real focus, which is a bit unique and, and again, disconcerting because it's, again, a mission, a mission critical sort of view of theirs as opposed to something that I think is more of an institutionalized view, and that is to focus on PE firms. I think they're trying to find a way to go after PE firms, and this is one of the more obvious, obvious ways to do it. Uh, so that's why people should be concerned because it's a, it is a, a way to resurrect something, Section 8 of the Clayton Act, that has been completely sort of unenforced for many, many years. And now it's an opportunity for the government to get a hook. And you see, like you said, in the last couple of weeks, it's already happening. So I think boards of directors need to do their level best to look at their board and make sure that even if they have done a review of their board to make sure there's no real meaningful competitive overlap, because there is a threshold under the Clayton Act, that there's no meaningful competitive overlap you need to make sure that that continues. You can't just look at it once and say, okay, we're, we're done, we're, we're good. 
you need to keep, you know, keep that under review. And so that's something that I would definitely advise boards of directors to continue to do and have good due diligence around making sure that their board is, you know, is solid under the Clayton Act. Thanks, Heather. So let me turn to another topic, Heather, the possible revival of criminal enforcement of monopolization cases. Assistant Attorney General Cantor has lamented the dearth of Section 2 case law addressing modern markets, and his former deputy for criminal enforcement, Richard Powers, has said that Section 2 is a felony just like Section 1, and that if the facts and the law lead us to the conclusion that a criminal charge based on Section 2 is warranted, we'll charge it. So my questions for you are, Heather, do you think we're likely to see a revival of criminal enforcement of monopolization cases? And what are the hurdles that the DOJ has to overcome in order to successfully bring a case in court? I don't think we're going to see an uptick for the exact same reason that your question sort of implies, which is that there are significant hurdles to these. I think to the extent we will see any Section 2 uh, enforcement is going to be just like the one that, that the government just uh, enacted, which is the um, plea agreement that was just announced. There, what it really is, is a section one case dressed up as section two. Uh, and that's that's how they have to prosecute these. What they have to do is they have to say that there was some level of collusion between competitors in, in order for them to be able to really satisfy the requirements of proving a section two violation criminally, because you're going to have to show criminal intent. You're also going to have to show market power, which you don't have to show right now in a section one per se case. You don't have to show market power at all. You don't have to define the market at all in a per se case. Now, by taking on the extra burden of traveling to section two, you're going to have to actually show things that are increased burden of proof, essentially, in a criminal case that you didn't have under section one. So it begs the question, why don't you just pursue a section one case. And this, this plea agreement that we just saw gives us an idea as to where there might be a situation uh, where they can't pursue a section one case. And so they're going to call it section two, because in that case, it was an attempted agreement not to compete. Uh, the competitor, the competitors in that case, one of the competitors reached out to the other and suggested uh, that they not compete. And the competitor who was reached out to went to the government. And then there was consensual monitoring and so since you can't prosecute an attempt because you have to have criminal intent and you can't have an attempted, uh, an attempted price fix, they then uh, decided to pursue this as a Section 2 case. But it's not what they were talking about. They were talking about an attempt, you know, a monopolization case. Um, and there were cases that were prosecuted back in the um, 80s, I think it was, that were Section 2 cases. And I'll make this note is that when Richard Powers, who... Uh, was the DAG of criminal enforcement at the time who announced this decision to criminally prosecute Section 2 when asked, what are the guidelines? We need to understand what the hallmarks are of a Section 2 prosecution so that we can advise our clients. They kept saying, we don't have to give that to you because Section 2 has always been a, a criminal, can always have been considered a criminal violation. And we prosecuted these cases before. So look at those cases in the 80s. Well, those cases in the 80s involved uh, competitors threatening, like threats of acts of violence against each other. I mean, they were very different and unique fact patterns that I'm not sure we're going to see again. And so the government has given zero guidance on this. And it seems, again, as an attempt to just find new ways to prosecute companies and individuals and goes back to what Dave, you know, started out our, our program with, which is just an effort to 
have an idea in their head about what the law should be and just go forward blindly uh, to, to push that through. But I think it's very interesting that there hasn't actually been uh, any any case brought so far, uh, despite the promises of doing so. And the one that they did bring, I think most would agree, is not a true uh, Section 2 case. Hey, Heather, uh, let me ask you a question about that case. Do, do you think that they could have charged wire fraud there since the defendant used uh, telephone calls to try to solicit a, a market allocation agreement? And if they had so. charged it as a wire fraud, wouldn't they have had an opportunity to get a different sentence? And, and what do you think about the policy of trying to make a statement about Section 2 by actually showing the defendant more leniency than if they had used the more logical tool that they had available to them as prosecutors? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, we've seen in, for example, the, the LIBOR case and cases like that where the antitrust division was involved, but they actually didn't charge a section one case. So you, absolutely the government has other tools they could use. And in this one, I think absolutely wire fraud would have been an appropriate way to do it. Again, I think what they did was they decided to forsake uh, the penalties that were probably more appropriate or in their view would have been more appropriate for this for the fact that they could get a prosecution. And, you know, someone who's entering into a plea agreement, especially when they're caught on tape and things like that, either they kind of accept whatever language the government's going to put in front of them. And then the government can point to that as their precedent. But that's kind of what, you know, it's worth what the paper is written on at this point is litigants look at that. They're not going to say, oh, oh I'm so scared now that we're going to have uh, a section two. They've got us, you know, that we're going to have we're going to have to plead to this now just because the government says it's so. And the government saying it's so is just not, doesn't have the weight that it used to. If the government said it's so in the past, it's so, you know, but that's just not the case anymore. The government, you know, says the sky is blue and it's actually, you know, not. <laughs> and you can see that for yourself. It's clear as day. So we're not just going to, you know, take whatever they say and step back. I mean, people recognize that it's, it's time to litigate until the government starts getting a little bit more reasonable. Hey, Dave, I realize uh, it's a few years now since you left the DOJ, but I'd be interested, was this a question that you considered seriously when you were there bringing criminal cases and Section 2 cases? Were there close calls for you? Not that I recall, uh, Nick. I, I can't reveal internal deliberations at the DOJ, but we were pretty transparent uh, in the administration that I served in. And for example, we developed the guidelines on no poach that got published and gave notice to the world about how those cases might be approached under Section 1 of the Sherman Act. To my recollection, we didn't discuss uh, this uh, publicly, and I think you can infer from that that it was not a, um, was not a priority when I was there. Thanks very much. So this has been fascinating. We have a few quick fire questions as always. Um, I know there are a lot of um, law students and young lawyers who listen to the podcast. So my first question is really a practical one. It's not about the law at all. You've both got considerable experience preparing for trials. So let me start with Dave and then move to Heather. How do you prepare for a trial and what advice would you give aspiring litigators? Preparation for trial involves throwing yourself fully into the effort, spending every waking moment for some amount of time that's proportionate to the issues in the case and the length of the trial, uh, thinking about nothing else. I find collaboration to be critically important, bouncing ideas off of colleagues 
and co-counsel constantly gaming out what might come up at trial, what might witnesses say, what turns might things take you, just keep planning out for the contingencies and then spending a lot of time with your witnesses and talking to them about the issues that are going to come up and helping them understand how they can explain things to the court. Of course, you can't tell witnesses what to say. They've got to stick to the truth. And I always make sure they do if they're testifying for us. But that you have to spend a lot of time making sure the witnesses understand what they're up against, what the cross-examination is going to be about, how to avoid misunderstandings and things like that. For young lawyers, just get yourself involved. When I was a young lawyer, I did anything I could to get myself into court. Pro bono is a great way to do it. I took on small claims for friends. I did my brother's consensual divorce. It was one of my first court appearances, was introducing as an exhibit the, uh, the, the settlement agreement between him and his former wife. And I'll, I still remember handing it up to the judge and freezing. And she said, counsel, would you like to introduce that as an exhibit? And I said, yes, your honor, I'd like to do that. Until you stand in court at the podium or introducing an exhibit, you just don't know how to do it, no matter how much you read about it or watch it or think about it. So just getting in into court and getting those opportunities is uh, great preparation for when you're going to be working on the bigger cases later on. Heather, a few tips from you. Everything that Dave said. Uh, and for me, it really is also about, and it just so happens that, uh, that a number of cases have, have gone to trial since I've, well, on both sides of the V. And so what it's taught me is I need to start preparing for trial from day one. The minute I get that case, I'm preparing for trial. Uh, you know, there's this there's this complacency, I think a lot of particularly antitrust lawyers have that no cases go to trial. And so particularly in civil litigation, where the stakes are, you know, so high with with treble damages and, and, and joint and several that they know they're going to settle out. And so I've always felt a complacency in joint defense groups that, you know, we're just going to have to get to the point A or point B. You know, we've got to get to class cert. We've got to get to summary judgment. And I really have the view you've got to think about I've got to get to trial. Uh, because I think that's what's going to make and shock sort of, you know, plaintiffs and, and, and frankly, the government into recognizing that, you know, I have a serious, a serious person here in front of me and they will take this to trial. So I think that's that's the main the main lesson I've learned. Excellent. So to our next quick fire question, uh, if you could change one thing about U.S. antitrust law, what would it be starting with Heather and then Dave? I love antitrust law, and I think the reason I love it is because it is a living, breathing thing. I mean, you can find a case on any fact pattern, it feels like. There's precedent out there, and you can go deep into, I mean, you could, you could spend days, months, weeks just spinning, spinning, looking at every case. And I think that's fascinating, and it's, so it makes me feel like there's nothing I would change about antitrust law. And that's why I think I'm kind of offended by what the government's trying to do here uh, by changing the law through political decision-making as opposed to following what's happened in the past. Let's learn from that. And maybe there are things to change on the margins, uh, but I think we have a pretty fascinating and set uh, and also breathing and growing uh, uh, practice here. And I think we should embrace that. Dave? Well, I'm going to be a little more critical of existing U.S. antitrust law as a process matter. We have two agencies in the United States that share jurisdiction over antitrust enforcement, 
and the system is awful. They decide among themselves who will get what cases. If you go to the FTC, it is a completely different process from if you go to the DOJ. The FTC itself has been challenged as unconstitutional in recent cases. They have an internal litigation system that is completely unfair to respondents. Basically, the commission can vote out a complaint, let it go to trial before administrative law judge, and then do whatever they want when the case comes back up to them for ultimate decision. It's horribly unfair, and uh, I wish we had one enforcement agency responsible to the executive branch, like all other law enforcement. This is a law enforcement matter. Uh, and um, I think maybe at some point the system will change, uh, but it's been like this for over 100 years, and I'm not holding my breath. Thanks, Dave. So now to a couple more personal questions, I guess, towards the end of the podcast. Uh, your proudest achievement and your greatest regret. I'll start this time with Dave and then Heather. Well, I had advance notice of this, and I struggled with the proudest achievement because I'm very proud to have been part of the things I've been a part of in my career. I'm very proud to have spent a long career clearly got Cleary Gottlieb, fantastic international law firm. Proud to have hung out with you, Nick, in Brussels for three years and learned a thing or two about uh, European competition law. I'm proud to have served in the government. But I'm not going to cop out and just say it's all those things. So I will tell you that there might have been no greater thrill and no greater feeling of pride than I felt having been part of the team that litigated, tried, and won the Sprint T-Mobile merger case against a group of state AGs. It was absolutely a, uh, a, a good lawful merger that brought tremendous benefits to mobile phone wireless markets. Uh, the company has done amazing things since that transaction closed. And we were just um, bombarded relentlessly by commentary and uh, pro-enforcement forces that just said it can't possibly be that this merger is acceptable simply because they thought that it was four competitors going down to three, that very superficial four to three mantra that you sometimes hear. And I was very proud to be part of that. It's fantastic. American company, and um, they deserve to get that deal done. And um, and now they're doing wonderful things with the combined assets. I think my uh, regret is that I didn't get a chance to do a clerkship when I was a young lawyer. I hear from so many lawyers that that was such a rewarding experience for them. I came out of law school. We already had a, a kid. We had no money. I had to go take a job that paid me something above minimum wage and uh, the clerkship options uh, really weren't uh, weren't very attractive. And so I, I started practicing in a, uh, a law firm uh, right away. But I think if I could go back and do it again, I'd probably do a clerkship. I think that would have been a great experience to have. Judicial clerkship. Anna. Uh, I second everything Dave, Dave said about proudest achievement. I mean, really, my most recent proudest achievement is being able to join this family. I am so proud every day working at Cleary and for wonderful clients. I will say in terms of a specific case, uh, agree that it is one case that will always have my heart. And that uh, was a case where uh, I was part of a team that represented an individual named Rohan Ramchandani in this large foreign exchange matter. Uh, this was sort of a train that was running and he was right 
in front of it. Uh, companies, all of the major banks had paid over $2 billion combined in criminal fines. Uh, the chat room was referred to as the cartel. So you could see how uh, it was an obvious you know, prosecution for the government, but all you had to do was, and as I told the jury in my opening statement, all you had to do was take just a, a deeper look into the evidence and you see that there is no there there. And that was absolutely the case here. Um, what they had contrived uh, to be a cartel was just not true. And my client uh, came over here. He, he could have stayed in London and, and lived a long, happy life. Uh, but instead, he came over here to face you know, the charges in front of a jury, that not of his peers. And he was looking at 10 years. And he left his young toddler daughter and his wife, who was nine months pregnant, to come to the U.S. and potentially not come back for a very long time. And he told me the night before he went in to go be placed in handcuffs by the court system that he would have come even if he was facing the death penalty. It meant that much to him to, to clear his name. And we did. We cleared his name. So the proudest moment for me was, was when that jury, each one of them had to, because it was a whole jury, uh, because I think that everyone wanted to see if, if this was truly each of their views. Every single one of them looked at both of us square in the eye and said not guilty. And that, that was truly the happiest, I think probably one of the happiest days of my life. So um, so that was my proudest achievement. And it's funny, my regret is very similar to Dave's, although it is totally fixable. So I'm going to use this podcast as a way to make me fix it. And that is that I have never been on what's called the CJA panel or the sort of the um, panel that represents individuals uh, in the Northern District of California uh, who, who need additional help, provides additional help to the public defender's office. And it's, I know it's extremely rewarding. I have many, many colleagues who have participated on that panel. And I wish I had spent the time to really gear up to do that and, and help out there. It kind of reminds me of the public service, which is another proud achievement like Dave that I had. I feel very proud of my public service and I kind of want to get, get back into that. So now I am going to pledge to everyone here that I, that I will be doing that. <laughs> Correct that regret. Oh, thanks, Heather. That was a truly inspirational answer on both fronts. My final question. Is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? Well, Nick, there's an old saying in Washington that's been attributed to President Harry Truman, that if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. I love dogs. We've had as many as four at a time. My wife, Marcia, and I uh, just adore them. You come home from a hard day, everybody's been giving you grief, you lost a case, you got criticized by opposing counsel, you had a bad day at the office, those dogs greet you the same way every night at the door, and it is unconditional love, and there is nothing better than having dogs. So that's something about me. That's a beautiful anthem to canine ownership and friendship. Heather? I love that answer. Uh, mine isn't really something maybe nobody knows about me, but it's a fun fact, which is that now I guess two weeks ago, I flew with my baby daughter who was about two months old uh, to Los Angeles because I was invited by my husband's cousin, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, to attend the premiere of Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever, Black Panther 2. And so I got to walk the red carpet and, and do all of the fun stuff. And it was just incredible. I guess the unknown fact is that the whole time though, I was wishing I could be home <laughs> with the baby. The movie was amazing. I personally 
liked it more than Black Panther 1, um, which I know is kind of not is a little bit taboo to say, but it was an incredible film. But we went to this after party, which was kind of like should have been the highlight of my life with all of these movie stars and getting to talk to them. And all I could think was I just want to get home and, and see my my new baby. So there's my fun fact. <laughs> Heather, thank you for sharing that with us. All I can say is if you feel like babysitting your children in the future, don't hesitate to call me and I'll be happy to take your spot. Well, I will say my husband used to be uh, Lupita's plus one to all of her red carpet events. And then I came on the scene. And so I think that was his biggest hesitation about whether or not he should go forward. Is was he going to lose that status? So we talked with her about it and she said it will just be plus two from from now on. And she's she's proven true on that. I've got to do a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> Heather, Dave, thank you very much for a truly fascinating podcast. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot, awful lot to think about. Look forward to welcoming you back in a couple of years' time, perhaps, to see how litigation has evolved uh, in the intervening period. For now, though, thank you to everyone for listening. Look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of the Antitrust Review podcast. I'm Nick Levy, and send you a good day.